Good morning to everyone. It's good to see you in the house today. Faith, that's what we're talking about this morning. It seems like it's a subject we've been talking about for the last few weeks. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Noah told us about the story of Joshua and said, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, that we will be a family of faith built on the words of our Lord and Savior, Though he did not know Jesus, he knew the words of God. Last week, Pastor Barry talked about drawing a line in the sand. Kind of challenged us with how strong is your faith? Do you know what you believe and are you willing to stand up for your beliefs? As we looked at the stories of Nebuchadnezzar and what he did to Daniel and the three Hebrew children. And today we want to continue on that theme of faith. How do you live by faith? So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, or you want to read it on the screen, we go today to the book of Habakkuk. If you are familiar with that book, you know it's a short Old Testament prophet book. It doesn't take long to read. So if you haven't read it and you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to read it this week. But the book is a little bit different than some of the other prophetic books that are in the Old Testament. Because it's not really a book where the prophet is giving a message, per se, to Israel and correcting them and telling them what to do. It's really a conversation about the prophet Habakkuk and God. He's questioning God. He's asking questions of God because a lot is happening that he doesn't understand. And it's always good to read books like this because I don't know about you, but I find sometimes... You just want to ask God a lot of questions. When you don't understand what's happening, you don't understand the way it's going, and you just want some answers. He's distressed because God's people are simply not living the way they ought to live. He looks around and he looks at Israel, and he knows that they are supposed to be a nation that is going to bless the entire world, the nation through which the Messiah is going to come, and all the nations of the world will be blessed. But when he looks around at his culture, when he looks around at his people, he's not seeing that. He's not seeing people that are alive and on fire for God. He's not seeing people that are living by the Mosaic law. In fact, he's seeing just the opposite. He's seeing a lot of wealthy people because it's a prosperous time. But they're not using their wealth to help other people. They're using their wealth to get even more wealth. They're greedy. They're keeping the poor people under their thumb and forcing them to live in poverty. He sees a lot of injustice. The courts have gotten crooked. People that deserve justice aren't getting it because the wealthy are buying and bribing the judges. The laws are being written to favor certain people and not other people. And of course, there's immorality. They're not living according to the Mosaic law. There's a lot of adultery going around, a lot of immorality, a lot of idolatry, a lot of violence. Family is breaking down. And so he's been questioning God about all this. Lord, are you going to do something about it? In fact, what are you going to do? And so he's praying basically for revival because he knows that the Lord has to come to these people and he has to wake them up. He has to bring them back to what they should be. 
And so he's asking the Lord, he's been asking the Lord to bring a revival to these people to change their hearts because he knows they need, the, they need their hearts changed. But he hasn't had any answers. God hasn't said anything to him. And nothing seems to change. And so this book begins to record his questions to God about this lack of change, this apathy that seems to have settled in on the people, their disregard for the law, their disregard for the things of God. And he asks the Lord for an answer. So starting in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, it reads like this. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed. There's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. Sound like any culture you know today? <laughs> Do you look around sometimes and wonder what in the world is happening in our culture? Where did we go astray? How did it get so bad? Violence everywhere you look. You can't pick up a paper or online or however you look at the news without seeing somebody else getting shot up. People shooting schools, people shooting in malls, people violence everywhere. People are angry everywhere you go. Heaven help you if you say something to someone in the line. Uh, when you're waiting, they're impatient, they shout. Laws are being passed that violate our basic beliefs. And even in the church, when you look at godly people, you'll wonder what's happened to them. Because they do seem kind of apathetic. They do seem disinterested, discouraged. They don't have the zeal that they used to have. They don't have the excitement to, for the things of God they used to have. And we pray much like Habakkuk did. Lord, when are you going to do something about it? Can't you stir the hearts of the people? Can't you make them come back? Can't you send your Holy Spirit and rain down so that we have this great revival meeting where people understand who you are? And what's happening? Lord, are you going to answer our prayer? And the Lord does answer his prayer. As you go to verse 5, here's the Lord's answer to the prayer of revival. When he says to Habakkuk, verse 5, the Lord replied, Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed. For I'm doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. It goes on to describe how awful the Babylonians are. That's not the answer that Habakkuk is looking for. No, that's not revival from our point of view. We're praying for a Bible, and God says, he, yes, I'm going to send it. Here's how it's coming. China or Russia, they're coming in. They're going to destroy your country. Half of you are going to die. The rest of you are going to be taken as slaves. You're never going to be free again. 
I'm marching you off to slavery. No, I don't like that plan. That's not the kind of revival we're praying about, Lord. Lord, that's not where we want to go. And Habakkuk was stunned by that answer. He knew that people weren't where they should be. He knew that they weren't good. But my heavens, they're not as bad as the Babylonians. And, and that's where basically he's saying, I know we're bad. I know that God's people need a little bit of help here. We're not doing what we ought to do. But good heavens, we're not as bad as the Babylonians. So why are you using those people? God, you hate evil. How can you be involved with evil people? God doesn't get involved with evil people. God gets involved with good people. How can God have a relationship with evil people? God hates evil. Habakkuk can't understand this answer. The Babylonians were idolaters. We heard about this last week uh, from Pastor Barry when he talked about them. They're building statues and forcing everybody to worship uh, an idol. They're throwing people in fiery furnaces. You know, they're throwing people in the lion's den. These people don't care about God. These people don't care about God's people. They're cruel. They're vicious. They're mean. How can they possibly be God's answer to what Israel needs? And this is what Abacuc comes back to God with in, in verse 12. He says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal... Surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O oh Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you're pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they are? Lord, how, how can this be your plan? How can any good come from this plan? How can you use evil people to correct basically good people? So Habakkuk says he will just stand and wait for the Lord to answer him again because he wants this question answered. Lord, how are you going to use these people? How can you do that? The Lord again does answer him. The Lord declares the wicked will indeed be punished, but he tells Habakkuk you're going to have to wait for my justice. I do see what's going on. I do know the problem. And you're going to have to wait. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he gives a foundational scripture that is used several times in the New Testament as well because it speaks to what people of faith should be like. In verse 4, he says, as an ant, God gives his answer to Habakkuk, Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Faith that God knows what he's doing. Faith that God's plan is the best possible plan that it can be. And this is what he's telling Habakkuk, can you live by faith? Do you have enough faith to understand that I know what I'm doing? Do you have enough faith to understand that this plan is going to be the plan that will bring about the promised Messiah that we have been talking about for so long? Do you believe, Habakkuk, that I am the God 
of all creation. God is not just God over God's people that believe in him. God created the entire universe, as we heard this morning. God created everything, and he rules and reigns over the entire creation, even the evil part of it. Nothing escapes God's sight. Nothing is out of control. Nothing happens that God does not allow to happen. Nothing's running amok. Nothing's out of control. God is God over everything. And he's saying to Habakkuk, I know the viciousness of the Babylonians, but understand I can use these people for my benefit. They will work into my plan even though they don't understand it, don't care about it, and don't know it. Because I'm the God of every government. No government exists that is outside my control. I own the whole world. A couple weeks ago when Pastor Noah was talking, he was talking about that plaque he put in his house uh, that comes from uh, the verse in Joshua, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. I know some of you have that plaque. It's a great plaque, you know, a frame plaque in your house. There's another plaque I see in a lot of people's houses when I go too. And that's the one with the quote from Jeremiah, where he says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. You know, plans to prosper you, to do good for you. And everybody loves that verse too. It's a favorite verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. How long will you leave that plaque up when the Lord says, these are the plans? I'm going to kill you, destroy you, and I'm going to make slaves out of the rest of you. That's the plan I have for you. That's the plan he gave to Habakkuk. And it's the plan that we know actually happened. We heard about it last week from Pastor Barry. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar destroying Israel and taking them away. But this was the plan that was needed that God set in order to accomplish the coming of the Messiah. Israel needed to be purified. They needed to wake up. They needed to change. They had been hearing from prophets for decades and had ignored them and hadn't done what they were supposed to do. They either put the prophets to death or, or got rid of them some other way. But they wouldn't listen. And so now they had to face judgment. And that judgment would be cruel and that judgment would be vicious, but that judgment would work. And by the time the exiles would return to Israel, the idolatry that they had become involved in would be broken. And you do not read as the New Testament opens that the people were idolatrous in, in this fashion anymore. They had learned not to bow their knee to an idol. The Jews would be scattered across the nations. They would be in every city by the time the New Testament opens because many of them couldn't return or didn't return after the exile was over. But as they would be in every city, they would be the open door for the spread of the gospel. As the Apostle Paul would say, he always went to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. So the way had been prepared for the coming Messiah, even though Habakkuk and the people of the time didn't understand it and didn't know it. The just shall live by faith. That means you need to have faith 
that God is in control even when it doesn't seem he is. He is never out of control. We never need to be worried that everything's going to fall apart and nothing is going to come the way it should. God is working together to bring about his purposes, whether we see them or not. This is what the Apostle Paul understood as he began to preach the gospel message uh, that we read about in the New Testament. He took this scripture from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith, and he uses it in a, in a few places uh, in his writings that we'll look at this morning. Because he understood that what Habakkuk had prophesied here, that if the just will live by faith, if they will trust God to know what he's doing, that his plans will work out and they will see the fruition of it. And now in Paul's time, they are seeing that happen. Paul was schooled in the law. He knew it backwards and forwards. But when he had that encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he was changed. And he understood that Jesus was indeed the Messiah that had been promised throughout all of the Old Testament writings. And his method of preaching would be that gospel message. He would go from city to city, to the Jews first and then to the Greeks, preaching who Jesus was and the truth of the gospel message. In his writing to the Church of Rome, the book of Romans, he expresses, he opens the book by expressing his desire to visit them. The church in Rome was not one of the churches that Paul founded, but he had heard about them. And he wanted to come and visit them because of what he had heard. He said, you're known as a church of faith. And everyone that talked about the church of Rome talked about the faith of that church. And so Paul wanted to come and fellowship with them. He wanted to talk to them about faith. He wanted to understand their faith. He wanted to know uh, everything that they believed, and he also, of course, wanted to share what he believed. And he would write in Romans, which is a, a whole book, is a great book, but in this opening chapter, what he distilled as the gospel message. This is what he preached everywhere he went. Romans 1, verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That gospel message that Jesus Christ is Savior, that gospel message that he preached everywhere he went was consistent. And he knew that the fulfillment of Habakkuk, Habakkuk being told to wait was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He understood the gospel message that the problem in this world is sin. Sin has always been a problem. It's been a problem since the Garden of Eden and still a problem today. And there has to be a remedy for sin if the world is ever going to become what God wants it to be. But mankind has always rebelled against God, always wants to go his own way, doesn't want to take care of the sin question. 
But God in his grace and his mercy took care of it anyway. When he sent his son, Jesus incarnate, into the world, he would lay down his life as a ransom for many. By his blood, sin could be handled once and for all. And when he was crucified on that cross and died, death did not conquer him. In fact, he conquered death. And that is the ultimate conquering that anyone could ever do, that we would not die. Because the wages of sin is death. It has always brought death into the world. And now, through Jesus Christ, eternal life is possible. And so because of that message, because of the truth, of who Jesus was, Paul had the faith to preach that message everywhere he went. I am not ashamed of that message. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to salvation. And it is the only way to salvation. There is no other way because there is no other way that will take care of the problem of sin. And as long as sin is the problem, then Jesus Christ is the answer. The just shall live by faith. And that faith understands Jesus is the only way. There is no other way to eternal life. Paul preached that message everywhere he went. He founded his churches on that message. But over time, churches built on faith somehow begin, just like the children of Israel in the Old Testament, to waver. And not everybody is always as convinced as the Apostle Paul was of the truth of the message of Jesus Christ. That through his blood, through the cross, sin has been conquered, death has been conquered, we have eternal life through him, what more do you need? And some of the churches started to listen to a different gospel and a different message. When Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he's writing to them about this very problem. He says, your faith is beginning to waver. Your faith in the truth of Jesus Christ, that he is the answer, is somehow starting to fall apart. And in chapter 3, he writes these words to them. He's, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? He's saying to them, when did you leave the gospel message that Jesus Christ is the only way? Down to verse 11, he says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. Why? For the just shall live by faith. In other words, if you have faith that the message of Jesus Christ is true, then that message will help you stand no matter what the culture or what anyone else is saying. But it seems like many of the believers in Galatia had indeed become ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't standing on it as absolute truth. And it seems one of the reasons that they began to compromise their faith 
was because the message of Jesus Christ was offensive to many people. People got offended by the message. In the case of Galatia, it was the Jews. Some of the stricter Jews were offended by the message that grace alone was necessary. The cross was enough. They had been schooled in the Mosaic law, and they thought that it should not be over, at least for the Gentiles either. And so they wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised. They wanted the dietary laws to continue. They wanted the Gentiles to live the way that they lived because they had always lived this way. And this is the way righteous people live. And when Paul talked to them, he said, no, we're not preaching that gospel. We're not compromising the gospel. That is not the way to live. And he wouldn't have anything to do with it. He says, we don't add to the gospel message. We don't subtract from the gospel message. The words of scripture contain the truth that we live by. But understand the truth of scripture will always be an offense to the unsaved. If I could pinpoint any one problem in the church of Jesus Christ today, I would pinpoint it as this problem. We have become ashamed of the gospel message. And we are so worried that we are going to offend somebody that we no longer preach absolute truth. We've kind of gone to a gospel light way of looking at things. And so somewhere along the line, we picked up that the idea that we need to make unsaved people comfortable. And so we dress like unsaved people because we don't want them to come in church and feel uncomfortable. We talk like unsaved people because we don't want to stand out. We don't want to make them uncomfortable. We act like unsaved people. And so... Most people, whether they're in or out of the church, can't tell who's saved and who's not because everybody acts the same. We talk the same, we look the same, we act the same. We don't want to offend anybody by making them feel bad. We're going to love them into the kingdom of God. That is not the message that Paul preached. Now, He loved everybody, but he did not love them into the kingdom. He preached the truth of the gospel message. Sin is a problem. And if you don't stop sinning and repent, you're never going to get there. But they don't want to hear that message. It's offensive. Nobody wants to hear they're sinners. And so we're ashamed of the message that is, in fact, the power of God to salvation. And I don't understand it. Why are we so afraid of offending the unsaved? Because it seems to me the unsaved have no problem offending us. Every time I I look around, I'm getting offended by everything this culture's doing. You know, I can't even wake up in the morning without getting offended. And nobody cares that I'm offended because as Christians, we don't have a right to be offended. They can offend us, but, oh, we don't want to offend them. The gospel message is either truth or it's not. And the just shall live by faith. 
And that means you are convinced that the gospel message is true. And if it's true, you will not backtrack from it. You will not worry about offending people because you understand the message in and of itself is offensive. It's offensive to the unsaved because it means they need to change. Now, understand, I'm not talking about us being offensive. Now, there are a lot of offensive people, frankly. Even Christian people can be very offensive. I'm not talking about you being out there offensive, you know, correcting everybody you see and acting all obnoxious and refusing to talk to people. That's not it. We are people that are compassionate. We treat everybody with dignity. We don't care who they are or what they do. We are kind. We are compassionate. We deal in love. But the message is offensive to the world because the message is you're a sinner and you need to change. All the problems in the world can be reduced to sin. It's not the government's fault. It's not your neighbor's fault. It's not your mother's fault. It's not your kid's fault. The problem is sin. And until you admit that you have sinned and you are a sinner and you need to change, you're not going to like the message. But once you understand it, once the Holy Spirit reveals it to you and you do repent and you do change, then you find a whole new way of living and a whole new way of looking at the world. People don't want to repent because the Bible says they love darkness rather than light. They want to stay in their sins. They don't want to repent. But faith understands the wages of sin is death. Our culture is dying because it's so sinful. Our culture has problems because it doesn't want the truth. So we make up our own truths. We make up our own ideas. And we can't understand why it's falling apart and why it's going the wrong way. But faith is not ashamed of the gospel. It does not apologize for the gospel. The just shall live by faith. It is the truth that Jesus is the only way. We can't just talk feel-good messages. We can't just make you feel good when you walk in the door. I had someone several years ago when I was still preaching. They were leaving the church. They came to tell me why. And they said they were tired of coming to church and being convicted all the time that they were doing something wrong. And so they were going to go somewhere where they could go through the whole service and not feel convicted about anything because they were tired of that. I said, why do you feel convicted? What are you doing? He says, well, you know, last week you talked about adultery. You talked about this. You said that was wrong. And, you know, I don't like hearing that. I said, really? Why? I said, you know, I just was somewhere, and the guy talked about adultery. It didn't offend me because I'm not committing adultery. So I, what do I have? I'm not feeling guilty about that. Why are you? Makes me think something's going on here. No, they wouldn't admit to that. But, you know, if you're feeling guilty about something, why is that? Because I can preach all about sin, and I'm fine with it. If you're not fine with hearing about sin, why is that? Could it be because you're sinning and you need to change? 
We don't change the message because it makes you feel uncomfortable. It's the truth. And if you compromise the truth, you don't have anything after a while. We have entire Christian denominations now that can't define sin. They've split over it. All the major denominations have split. Because defining sin makes certain people in the culture feel bad. And so we don't want to say that the Bible actually says that behavior is wrong because it will offend a lot of people in the culture. And then they will persecute us, they will be mad at us, and they will do things to us. Yes, that's exactly right. But you don't stop the message because it offends sinners. They should be offended. Their behavior is wrong. We don't allow it in the church. But if you compromise your faith, if you worry about who's going to be offended, you're never going to get anywhere. And too many people don't want to talk about it. See, Paul was a defender of the faith. Too many people today are simply cowards of the faith. They'll sit in a group of people and hear something completely wrong and never speak up. I don't want to make waves. I don't want to tell my children that they're wrong. Because then, you know, it'll, it'll cause a problem in the house. I don't want to tell my uncle he's wrong. I don't want to tell people where. Uh, it's not that you're going around telling people where you're wrong, but it's like we heard last week. Are you going to draw on the line, a line in the sand somewhere? Are you going to say, this behavior, not in my house? Or are you going to keep compromising so that you don't hurt people's feelings? The just shall live by faith. And that faith is a total belief that the gospel message is the truth. The absolute truth is not going to change. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's not going to change in the next 2,000 years. You're either on board or you're not. Get on board. The Hebrew writer will pick up the same phrase. Because unfortunately, weak faith eventually leads to no faith. And in Hebrews chapter 10, particularly, he starts talking about faith. And he's writing to a group of people who seem to have lost their faith. They've turned back. They're not following God anymore. They're not worshiping anymore. And they've left the faith. And so in chapter 10, verse 37, he writes this. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The early church expected Jesus to return at any time. But as time went by, it became obvious he wasn't coming back quite as quickly as they thought he was. And that's left some of them disillusioned. He promised to come back. He hadn't come back. I guess he's not coming back. Maybe the message was wrong. Maybe what he said wasn't true because he said he's coming back. He didn't come back. Others got disillusioned by the hardships of life. There was a lot of persecution at this time. It was difficult. Many of them got sick. They prayed to be healed. They looked around and they said, where's the healings that we used to see? When Jesus was around, you know, people just healed all the time. The early apostles, they healed everybody. Now we don't see anybody getting healed. What's the problem? Many had fallen away. They returned to sin. 
And here, the writer, just like God spoke to Habakkuk, says, if you don't persevere and make it to the end, then you don't have faith that will stand. They had to wait for their promise too. Just like God told Habakkuk, you're going to have to wait and see what I'm doing. The Babylonians are going to purge you, uh, but not in a nice way. Habakkuk actually wouldn't be alive, of course, to see the fruition of that with Jesus Christ. But he had to believe that that truth was coming. And so now the Hebrew writer says, Jesus is returning. The fact that he hasn't returned yet doesn't mean he's not coming. People of faith know that what he said is true, and that is what is going to happen. If you start to lose your faith, if you start to weaken in your faith, it's because you've taken your eyes off the prize, the return of Jesus Christ. We talk about his death a lot, and certainly we know that because of the crucifixion, that's why our sins are taken away. Uh, But they're not taken away just we sit around. We're going somewhere. God has a purpose and a plan that is still going forward. And that plan is the return of Jesus Christ when the creation is restored back to what God wanted it to be, where sin is finally defeated and we live no more with sin. But he said, if you give up your faith, if you turn back, then you're not going to live to see that promise because that promise is just as true as the fact that sin can be taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Discouragement comes when we stop focusing on where we're going and start focusing on where we are. Because where we are is usually not a very good place. Sin still reigns in this world. It always has and it always will. So that means there will always be heartache. There will always be disappointment. There will always be stresses. There will always be betrayals. There will always be persecution. Because there's always sin. But the day is coming when all of that is going to be taken care of. And he's restoring creation back to what he wanted it to be. For all those times you've cried yourself to sleep because of heartaches and hurts and disappointments, he says the day is coming when he's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. When you have looked around and wondered, how can there be so much injustice in the world? How is it that some people seem to be born into situations they have no control over, born into poverty, raised in abuse, never have a chance in this world, die early. The day is coming when justice will finally be meted out. When you look around and see evil on every side and wonder, when is God going to do something about this evil? Understand nothing escapes his eyes. He records it all. And a judgment day is coming. And when that judgment day gets here, he will handle everything according to his plans and purposes. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Not the little squishy hell people want to talk about today. People of weak faith. Well, we have enough hell today that I don't think we need a hell in the future because too many people have been in hell all their life. Yeah, that's just a preview of what's coming. 
That is not. Uh, you think that's bad. Where do you see the real hell? There's a truth to that. And there's a truth to heaven, too. Treehouse video today ended with chapter 11. If you keep reading in the book of Hebrews, of course, you come to what we call that grace faith chapter of Hebrews, where he talks about all the people who did not see the final coming Messiah, but understood he was coming. They all died looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. The Old Testament saints died looking for the Messiah. The New Testament saints die looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Whether we will be here when Jesus comes or whether we will die and meet him later, doesn't matter. Faith knows he's coming. Faith knows in the truth of his return. And that chapter 11 ends with a verse that you won't find on very many plaques on very many walls. Because it's not a fun verse. I never liked this verse. Because I don't think I can live up to this verse. But chapter 11 ends with a verse that talks about how the just will live by faith. And this is how the just live by faith. He says living by faith is like being tortured, flogged, chained, stoned, sawed in two, destitute persecuted, mistreated, wandering in deserts, mountains, living in caves, living in holes. I don't like that verse. Faith is supposed to be where we all get together and we praise the Lord and the Holy Spirit moves and we all speak in tongues and the healings take place and, you know, people, everything goes well and we're all prosperous and wonderful. I don't want to hear about flogging. I surely don't want to hear about being sodden too. I break out in a sweat just getting a blood test. I'd never make it to being sodden too. I hope I, I hope I go before I have to be challenged on that. I don't know if my faith is that deep. I hope it's that deep. I pray it's that deep. I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to find out. But it says all those saints had that kind of faith, and they never gave up, and they never turned back. Compare that with the average Christians today. What kind of faith do we see? Half the Christians I know are angry because they didn't get healed. But God's plan isn't their plan. They don't like God's new plan. Their friend died. Somebody, their spouse died. They lost a job. Things didn't go their way. They came into church, walked through the entire lobby, and nobody said hi. Not going to go to church where nobody says hi. Constantly whining about how they're offended. Constantly fussing about the government. Please, people, stop fussing about the government. Jesus Christ is in control of the government. It's going to work out his way. Stop fussing. Get on board. The just shall live by faith. God knows what he's doing. His plan is working towards the return of Jesus Christ. Where we are on that timeline, I do not know, but I know he's coming, and I know in the meantime, God's going to work it all out. Believe in the gospel message. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't retract it. Don't change it. Preach it. The just shall live by faith. Living a life of purpose. I'll close with this. I received online some time ago. I get these all the time. I'm sure you probably do too. 
an invitation to a workshop to find my purpose in Christ. I don't know why I got it. I kind of think I found my purpose in Christ, but you know, I don't know. But I could come to this seminar. It was a three-day seminar, and by the time I was done, I would know my purpose in Christ. I would get a workbook, too. And, you know, but it was expensive. It cost money to go. So I'm going to leave you today with how to find your purpose in Christ. It's not going to cost you anything. You don't need a workbook. You're not going to get one. And it's only going to take about five minutes, and then we'll be done. Your purpose in Christ is to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That means every single day, you purpose to extend the kingdom of God in your little corner to the best of your ability. If you are married, that means you purpose every single day to have the best marriage you can possibly have. Because the world has lousy marriages. They can't stay married two seconds, and they need to see people that are committed to each other, love each other, and care about each other. So you make your marriage the best it could possibly be. That's your purpose. Too many Christian marriages are just as bad as the world's marriages. That's not a good thing. That's a compromise. If you have children, your purpose is to raise them in the fear and admonition of God. They should know God. You should ensure that, and you raise them by godly principles. If you're single, your purpose is to live such a joyful, filled life because you can go anywhere and do anything. You have no uh, encumberments that a family has that people should see the joy and, and fulfilled life that you have being moral and being alive for Jesus Christ. If you have a job, your purpose is to be the best employee that your boss ever saw. You are honest. You are dependable. You are someone he's going to promote. If you are a neighbor to someone, you should be the best neighbor on the block, helping each other, looking around, not fussing because a dog ran across your lawn. You do what you should do, and the Lord will do the rest. He takes you where he wants you to go, so let him take you. The Apostle Paul wanted to visit that church in Rome because it was known for its faith. He couldn't get there. He kept writing to them, I'm trying to get there, but I can't get there. So one plan after another fell apart. He would eventually get there, but not the way he thought. He would go there in chains. But that church in Rome was known for its faith. How many churches today, when you ask what they're known for, you'll hear that they're known for their faith? We have all kinds of things we like about churches. Oh, that church, they have great worship. You should go to that church. They worship so well. Oh, you just feel the presence of God the minute you walk in the door. No, you should go to this church. Oh, they have a preacher there. He is so good. I mean, when you listen to him, you're just for the week, you know, you're energized. He's such a good one. You should go to this church. It has the best programs. They have the best youth program. Uh, everything about that place you will love. You will fit in. Uh, you know, they're so good. You go to this church. They're so on fire for God. You'll just love them because they're on fire for God. Where's the church of faith? 
The just shall live by faith. And the only church that is going to make it through the test of time is a church of faith. The Roman church was known as a church of faith. And by the way, that church is still with us today. Good or bad, the church in Rome has influenced the world beyond any proportion. Paul wanted to see what they were grounded on. Now, they have been good and they have been bad, for sure. They have influenced Christendom unlike any other church. They have made great strides. They held together Europe when it fell apart, when the Roman Empire fell. But then the Lord came in, or I should say Satan came in. They weren't always good. Corruption came. Corruption beyond anything you could imagine. And it looked like the whole of Christendom would fall because they were so corrupt. The leadership was so bad. Pockets of just people were noticing. They were praying. They were beginning to lay down their lives. Some of them were burned at the stake for trying to get the Bible out for people to read. Some were put to death because they challenged the corruption of But God, in his time, had a plan. And when it seemed all of Christendom would fail, when pockets of people were just, God took this verse to one person. And when Martin Luther read, the just shall live by faith, the Holy Spirit took those words and sparked a revolution in that church. It's called the Reformation. Because as we heard this morning in prophecy, God always has a Samuel. God always has a David. God always has a Martin Luther. God always has the just. And if the just will live by faith, not compromise, keep their eye on the prize, not lose the fact that he's returning again, The church that is made up of faithful people is a church that will never disappear. The just shall live by faith. We want to be a church of faith. So convinced of truth that no matter what happens to us, no matter what setbacks we get, whether we get sick, whether someone dies, no matter what plan you have falls apart, we know God's plan is truth and the better way. The just shall live by faith. Stand with me as we close this morning. And as they come to close with a song, if your faith is starting to waver, if you're starting to compromise, you're not convinced of the truth, You know you're not going to stand up against persecution when it comes because you can't stand up and work. Come and talk to the Lord about it. There's people here that will pray for you. You can just talk to the Lord. But understand, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And you will have a life that is so different than you ever thought you would have when the just live by faith.